0: Well, good morning. It is Tuesday, the 16th of November, and it's possible you're listening to us this morning for the very first time in Des Moines, Iowa. So, welcome Should to I our new it? listeners at Faith 100.7. Go ahead, Paul Perot.
1: Good
2: morning,
0: Des Moines. Okay, we've got that out of the way. <laughs> it's so much better than I could do. That is Paul <laughs> Perot. He is the most excellent producer of this program, and he's the one um, to whom all the credit is due when some cool song is played that actually fits with what we're talking about. So there you go. Um, All right. So here's what we do on Mornings with Carmen. For those of you joining us for the very first time in Des Moines, we take the headline news of the day. We apply the mind of Christ, and we try to prepare ourselves to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. So that's what we are up to here from uh, 6 to 8 a.m. central every weekday so we'd love it if you join us we'd love if you'd share with your neighbors and your friends that we're doing this and invite them to come along for the ride so thanks for thanks for being here this morning um uh, thanks for considering what we're doing our goal is uh, to encourage you in your walk of faith so um if those of you who are, are familiar with what we do here would we'll just pause and think for a moment, all right, if, if you are in a setting and somebody calls the crowd, even the whole nation, wherever you are, wherever you are in the world, if somebody were to turn to a crowd and say, this whole people group, this whole place, this whole nation must embrace one religion, we would stop and seriously consider what we were hearing who was saying it who who was speaking and how people are responding would we not i mean if we were in an environment where someone was issuing a call for everyone in that particular nation to bow the knee in one particular direction we would take pause as americans because we recognize the power of pluralism and the freedom of each individual to believe or not believe whatever uh, their conscience leads them to believe or not believe. So while I am an evangelical Christian who absolutely holds out hope um, and recognizes that the day will come upon the return of Christ when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, I also recognize that I live in the context of a free people, people who are free to choose their religious expression or no religious expression at all. So if someone at, let's say, Davos or the United Nations was calling for everyone to embrace one religion, you know, I'd have some thoughts about that. If I were in a context where an Islamic jihadist were seeking to bring about the caliphate, and calling for everyone to embrace one religion under their understanding of God, I would have some thoughts about that. And so I have some thoughts about a pro-America stop-the-steal event where people were with one breath singing to Jesus, and in the next breath chanting, let's go, Brandon, and with the next applauding a speaker who called them to embrace one religion. Here's the quote. If we're going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion. It was spoken at the Reawaken America tour stop in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, One nation under God requires one religion under God. Um, And that is a vision that we have to acknowledge, we must acknowledge is actually contrary to the constitution of the United States of America. It's contrary to the constitution's guarantee of freedom of religion, um, under any, under any understanding. And so we have to listen and we have to, yes, absolutely be awake. I am, I am an absolutely awake participant in the conversations of the day, but that means we have to listen critically, um, When things are spoken that are contrary to who we are as we the people. And the vision for the United States of America being a place where Christians absolutely can be free, and so can everybody else. All right, next up, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. We're going to talk about all kinds of things from the headlines of the day. We're going to do so from a Christian worldview. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is joining us now. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can also find him on Twitter, Mark Caleb Smith. He writes at at dot com. Welcome back, sir.
2: Hey Carmen, how are you doing today?
0: I'm well. I it is well with my soul. So how about you? <laughs> uh,
2: I'm I'm doing well. Doing well. Getting ready for the end of the semester. Looking forward to a Thanksgiving break. So uh, I love my students, but uh, I think we all could could use a break coming up here.
0: Did you get your hands on one of those full-size Reese's peanut butter cup pies before they before they were sold out?
2: I I did not. No, I did, did not. Do you okay. no, even know?
0: Okay, me aware. either. This is, is I'm gonna. It's all right. So apparently Hershey's made full pie size Reese's peanut butter cups. This is the size of a regular pie, but it's a <laughs> peanut. It's a Reese's peanut butter cup, but they're already sold out. So I feel like. <laughs> My question to everybody is going to be, did you get one? And if so, that's where I'm going for Thanksgiving.
2: <laughs> that sounds wonderful and horrible all at the same time.
0: I See, exactly. Wonderful, <laughs> simultaneously wonderful and horrible. It's, it's also like a, just a giant, big Ohio, you know that Buckeye that you yeah, make that's sure. got the peanut butter in the middle and the chocolate? It's just a giant Buckeye smushed down. So I feel like, you know... Ohio should probably get get something out of that. All right, so I digress. Tell us about um, what the president has already signed into law, the infrastructure bill, uh, or now the infrastructure law, and the prospect of Build Back Better now that apparently it's been scored and, in fact, it's not paid for.
2: Yeah, I, so the president uh, signed yesterday uh, the infrastructure bill that we've been talking about for quite a while um, and it was it was a big to do. You know, s- some of these signing ceremonies are it had been ratified for a while now, but they they delayed in order to get a bipartisan event yesterday, which I think is interesting. And it tells you uh, what the president's mind is on right now. Um, but the bill it ends up being uh, less than half of what they hoped for. Right. At one point, this was a two point three trillion dollar bill. So it ended up being less than half of that. Uh, but it includes significant money, I mean, into the tens of billions of dollars uh, for the electrical grid, uh, for increased rail systems, for broadband throughout different parts of the country, uh, environmental projects, lead pipe removal, all sorts of things um, that I think many people would say are, are sort of long standing issues that we need to address at one level uh, or another. And, of course, this is only possible because they got 19 Senate Republicans to vote along with the bill uh, and ultimately uh, got 13 House Republicans to vote with the bill as well. And that's created all sorts of uh, havoc within the GOP.
0: All right. So let's pivot, if we can, to what's now um, before uh, Congress, which is this conversation about Build Back Better Remind us what that is and uh, what you think the prospects are for um, for that.
2: So the Build Back Better bill is uh, looking right now around one point seven five trillion dollars. And again, it's mind boggling to be thinking in terms of trillions of dollars being spent, uh, which is just simply where we are at the moment. Uh, Still opposed by Republicans universally. They haven't been able to, to get any Republican support for this. And so this is going to have to be passed through what we call the reconciliation process. So it's a budgetary item that can pass through the Senate without a filibuster, which means ultimately Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are going to be key players again in this whole thing. But uh, what the bill tries to do is it it, it appropriates funds for things like climate change, uh, effort to move away from uh, fossil fuels. Now, obviously, that's a stumbling block for Joe Manchin. Senator from West Virginia, his state's very reliant on uh, fossil fuels for its uh, for its economy. Uh, It seeks to uh, put child care and universal pre-K in place, Uh, hearing expenses connected to Medicare. Uh, An increased child tax credit like we've been seeing the past six months or so is going to go into 2022. It looks like if this continues and then some housing assistance uh, for low income individuals as well. So we look at this and see it as, you know, we're checking off some progressive boxes for sure. Uh, The progressives have been arguing for some of these measures for quite some time. And that's one of the reasons why they support this bill so much. But through the negotiation process so far, they've removed a free community college, which was an argument at one point, uh, increased prescription drug benefits uh, and additional funds for family and medical leave. And so we've seen some give and take, but I think we're going to have to see more in order for, uh, to get support from people like Cinema and Manchin in the Senate. So I think that price tag's gonna have to go down, like you said, because now it's been scored. It's not paid for through the tax increases that uh, the Biden administration was hoping for. And I, I think, again, we're looking at a complicated piece of legislation It's gonna take some time to work itself through. Uh, but I think given the infrastructure success, President Biden is in a little bit stronger position. And as you and I talked last time, a couple of weeks ago, It seems like to me he's willing to work with the moderates and even some Republicans to get this passed, uh, even if that means cutting out some of the progressive parts of his own party.
0: All right. We are talking with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Seniorville University. When we come back, we're um, going to examine the conversation about what I'll call political typology. So when you think about yourself, do you think of yourself as red or blue politically or, you know, are you— Some shade of purple. What's up next here on Mornings with Carmen?
1: You got trouble! trouble. Right here in River City! City. With a capital T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool! That stands for pool! We've
0: surely got trouble! (laughs) (laughs) So, good morning again to our brand new listeners in Des Moines, Iowa at Faith Uh 100.7. Mark Caleb Smith is a regular conversation partner here on Mornings with Carmen. He is with us today. Um, Mark, let's talk about Pew Research's latest look at our political categories. It's um, it's far more interesting than just are you red or are you blue?
2: Yeah, I mean, we tend to think in those very polarized categories. Like you said, I'm red and I'm blue. I know what I I think. I, I know what other people think and I don't like them. Um, And that's a pretty simplistic narrative. And for people who study politics in great depth, and we know there's an awful lot going on below the surface of those party labels, Um, Pew, I think, has done a really nice job putting together this uh, approach to typology, like you talked about. And they're trying to tease out differences within the parties. And so we're looking at kind of the groups of people who make up the Democratic Party, broadly speaking, or the Republican Party, broadly speaking. And and what they find, and I I find it persuasive, uh, what they find is each party has really about four key constituencies. And those constituencies don't always agree with each other. And frankly, sometimes they have contradictory goals. Um, And and that makes it really difficult, I think, for political, for party leaders to to govern uh, in this situation. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an interesting breakdown. I mean, just real quick. I mean, as an example for the for the liberals, for the Democrats, they say you have establishment liberals, which are far you know far left, but not necessarily willing to overthrow all the systems. The progressive left, which is ready to overthrow all of our systems for the most part. Uh, Democratic mainstays, which are the oldest group of Democrats, who kind of tilt moderate on some issues, and then they have what they call the outsider left. Uh, which are liberal folks, but who are really frustrated with the Democratic Party, and they tend to be younger. And, you know, when we think through our discussion we just had of the infrastructure bill or the Build Back Better plan, you can see these different groups competing for different parts of those kinds of legislation. And I think you start to understand why political reality is so much more complicated uh, than just red or just blue.
0: So uh, we have a listener, Mark, who is saying, I tend to think American, not red or blue. Well, Don't you think that everybody who is an American thinks that what they think is American and what everybody else thinks is something other than that?
2: Uh, I I think so. And I think especially the parties have a strong interest in encouraging their followers to think that they are American and other people don't fit that label. And therefore, they don't deserve the same kind of uh, attention or respect necessarily And, you know, I agree with the sentiment there. You know, I see myself as an American as as well. And I think, okay, what's good for the country as opposed to what's good for my party or Mm -hmm. what's good for my little group? But in a practical sense, if we're talking about winning elections or talking about getting bills passed, the agenda has to be a little bit more narrow than just what's good for the country. You got to figure out what that means, how to answer that question and find other people who agree with how you answer that question.
0: And it's always going to be perceived as of benefit to some group of people smaller than everyone. Like it, when we when we talk about you know what's good for America or doing what's best for the country, we're ultimately talking about either a minority doing something that um, that actually intentionally favors a minority because that's actually good for the country to favor a minority on some things or to do things that favor the majority, because on some things that's the right thing to do. Um, but that's where we don't seem to be able to have like honest dialogue and just say, look, we recognize this favors a majority, here are the reasons that's positive for us as a people going forward, or this intentionally favors a minority, and here's why that's positive for us going forward as a people.
2: Yeah, I mean, think back to the infrastructure bill uh, which was relatively bipartisan in support. Uh, Rob Portman, who is one of the architects of the bill in the Senate, from, he's from Ohio, retiring senator from Ohio. Um, he argues that this is a majority bill that's supported by a majority of Americans and a bipartisan coalition was actually representative of the country to get this done. And he, said, he argues that that's the way legislation should work, right? What is, what is what is most of Americans, what do they support? And how do we turn those things into policy? Uh, But when you talk about how that works within the Senate or within the House, the biggest criticism that they've gotten, people like Portman and McConnell and others who ended up voting for this bill, is, well, you just gave Joe Biden a win. Well, notice it isn't about what's good for the country. It's about what's good for the party or what's bad for the other party. And that's the focus. Now, again, we can argue about whether this is a good bill or a bad bill. But if our primary focus is, what does the next election look like? And it's not what's good for the country. What do we need to spend money on potentially? Or how do we reduce regulation in a way that's good for the whole country? Not worrying about the next election. Uh, Then it shows you sometimes, I think, how skewed our priorities really are.
0: Yeah, because globally, Mark, who's not worried about the next election? Those uh, people who live in places where there's not going to be a next election because the people who are in power have made sure that that is going to be true of them and their party right. forever. Um, and so I think that when we, when we lose sight of just how fragile um, American democracy is, um, you know, we, we do damage to ourselves. Like we're, we're breaking ourselves against our own beautiful, wonderful democratic system.
2: Yeah, there's no question. And I think what it shows us as well is that the extreme opinions that we see represented so much on social media and even mainstream media, they are truly extreme opinions. And we need to understand that they're not representing the whole, even within a party, much less across the country. And so we've got to figure out a way way to break out of those extreme positions uh, and be a little bit broader in how we approach things. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely.
0: So let me ask this question um, in terms of when I observe a a genuinely extreme opinion being expressed, um, I feel responsible to say, hey, we need to take note of the fact that that is an extreme opinion. Like I I hear I have heard what this person has publicly said, and I see that they have uh, people rallying support around this idea. I need to pause right there and I need to say that is extreme and here's why.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree, and I think that that's good for the community and it's good for uh, for politics as well. I, I think a good example in recent uh, history would be the, the defund the police movement. Whatever you think of uh, our criminal justice system, that was an extreme radical position to take, which ended up costing uh, the supporters of criminal justice reform, I think, dramatically. Uh, and It's going to continue to do so, but many people are just unwilling to label it as extreme because of the consequences that might follow with that label. Uh, we've got to move past that a little bit, I think, to, to establish some common ground uh, between these groups.
0: Common ground is a good conversation um, for us to be having. It's a wonderful way to enter into a conversation with a person um, who you may not know well or think you know well. It's a great way to get to know one another better, to back all the way up to something you can agree on. Can we agree that today is a beautiful day? Can we agree that it's a gift of God? Can we agree that we are blessed to live where we live? Um, can we agree um, Can we agree on something? And then start there. Start uh, on the places where you agree with someone today, and then take the next step into conversation. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, um, thank you as always for joining us. It is a delight.
2: Thank you, Carmen. You take care. It's good to talk to you.
0: Good morning, Iowa. That little ditty is for you. For those of you listening for the very first time uh, on Faith 100.7 in Des Moines, we're thrilled to have you in the Faith Radio listening family. You can check out more of what's going on at the Faith Radio Network at myfaithradio.com. We also have an app for all that. You can download the Faith Radio app and take us everywhere you go. We'd love to go along for the ride. Um, So uh, next up, we're going to talk with Ken Tankersley. He's a senior VP for Young Life. Um, And for those of you who know a little of my story, you know I have a Young Life story. And so I'm just thrilled to talk with Ken uh, in this 80th anniversary year of Young Life about you know, the changes among young people, the presentation of the gospel, the need to share the gospel generation to generation, and how we're going to do that now with Gen Z. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
2: Moms and dads often bear the brunt of anger unleashed by their teen, like a son who's set off by the dumbest things. Sound familiar? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Anger is often the impulsive emotional response from a kid who's denied what he wants. Well, boys truly want to grow up to be men, but that process is often hampered by parents who aren't ready to hand over the freedom. Moms and dads who nag less and let a young man make choices actually transfer a responsibility to their kids. Mom, dad, he'll never grow up if you keep spoon feeding his every desire. Let your son, your daughter make their own decisions. Their painful mistakes will teach
1: them lessons they could never learn from a lecture. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Right, if you've ever wondered to yourself, where did Carmen get most of her ideas about incarnational ministry, about walking your faith into the life of another person and inviting them to know the Jesus you know who has changed everything? If you've ever wondered, like, why I think of ministry the way I do and why I think of the Christian faith the way I do, you can blame it all on Young Life. So Senior Vice President of Young Life, Ken Tankersley, joins us now. Ken, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Carmen, thanks for having me. Very kind words.
0: Absolutely. Well, this is the 80th anniversary um, of Young Life. So for listeners who are not familiar with Young Life, tell us about it.
1: Yeah, well, you're right. We just turned 80 as an organization in October. So we've been around since the early 40s. And our mission is pretty simple. uh, It's to introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and to help them grow in their faith. Like you mentioned earlier, it's a relational ministry. We feel like uh, that's what God did to make himself known to us. He came. That was his humility. That was his obedience. And we continue that. That's our model. So all around the U.S. and then 104 countries around the globe, we've been doing that for years. And I think we'd say now, I think you'd agree, it's needed now more than ever Uh, relationships uh, seem to be teetering, our ability to interact and have discourse and talk about some of the bigger questions in life is harder now than ever before. So this is our sweet spot and it's needed now more than ever. So that's us.
0: So, uh, my young life story includes uh, Charlie and Mary Scott. It includes Fitz and <laughs> Kathy Connor. It includes Robert and Virginia Morris. Today, my experience of young life includes uh, a national uh, young life staffer named Megan Stevens Comp, um, who lives in a community where I live and serves young life um, by serving staff in in India. So uh-huh. it it has changed over time. I mean, like there wasn't even like urban Young Life when I was in Young Life. So, you know, I go, I'm old enough to remember when my Young Life leaders showed up at my house and we moved all the furniture out of like every room on the first floor, you know, to pack students in there for clubs. So can you, for people unfamiliar, again, with the rhythms of Young Life, it is relational in that um, a mature Christian enters into authentic, Friendships with high school students, um, but not in a way that's creepy. And so I think that's important to note. Um, and then utilizes this formula of at least when I was in high school and college, club campaigners, which is more discipleship oriented, camps, which are really like um, teenage-friendly resorts. Um, and and you know it's through those experiences over the course of time, that you not only come to know Christ, but you come to know Christ through an authentic, mature Christian. So have I encapsulated um, through my own experience what you hope people are saying about Young Life in their communities today?
1: Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, Young Life is customized, uh, created just for teenagers, for adolescents. We work in three spaces, junior high, high school, and college. Adolescence, if you talk to social scientists, adolescence has stretched in the last couple of years. So now it doesn't end at your teenage years, 18 or 19. And for some college students, they'll say it'll continue on to 24, or 27. Many adults might argue it'll go on far beyond that, but that's our sweet spot. That's the 11 to 15 years there that we focus on. All kinds of major decisions in life. What I'll believe, how I'll behave, what I will think, who I'll align with, my feelings about faith, some of the bigger questions, is God there? Does God care? Does God care about me? And what do I do about that? All of those are consistent. As you know, the teenage culture, the adolescent culture changes weekly, perhaps. But what we've seen in addition to that, and that's true, so we're students of students. And if there was one word that described the thousands of Young Life volunteers or thousands of Young Life staff like me, it's that we would go. That's the incarnational element of it. We're gonna go where kids are and whether that's the local high school or junior high or there's ways that we can support a school or coach or be a presence there and engage with kids and get to know them and be, like you said, a, an adult who's living a faith that's interacting with a student All good things happen from that place. Yes, we have some of the elements of the ministry, the weekly meeting. I was at mine last night, Club, which is sort of a Christian meeting for non-Christians. Our heart is disinterested kids. That's not hard to find right now. We're in the third generation of unchurched um, students in the culture, meaning they may not have a church background and their parents may not have a church background. So some of the conversations that we bring up of who is God and is he there and does he care are monumental for them. And a student might need space to unpack that, to think through it, to have somebody to work through that with. And, yes, we have 26 national properties all around the U.S. And now more than ever, to give a student a chance to stop and to pause, to unplug, literally, to not be on their on their phones or on their screens for all day long and to ponder some of those bigger questions what we see is miracles happen in that space it's deeply needed and in this season right now maybe maybe even more poignantly felt than ever you need to have adults who are coming forward with a message of hope i think students have a understanding or acknowledgement or realization that there must be a God that when they're confronted with the yearning of their hearts or things that they see in the world, whether it be brokenness or joy. And um, right now, that's a tough uh, arena to navigate. We, we see it in the news every day. Your your station just uh, talked about the shooting just yesterday in my community, 20 minutes from my house in, a, in Aurora, Colorado. Yeah. So yeah, so it's... a uh, the principles are exactly the same for the last 80 years. How it gets contextualized with this culture changes week by week, and that keeps us on our toes.
0: We're talking with Ken Tankersley. We're talking about students. We're talking about the reality of a third generation, now not only students who have no experience with church but whose parents have no experience or no positive experience with the church? How do we, as adult Christians, engage with a generation of young people who know not the church, um, who who remember not the stories that we refer to? They wouldn't. They wouldn't get a reference to the Good Samaritan. They wouldn't get a reference to Noah. They wouldn't just in, instinctively understand those things if we made casual reference to them. Um and so what does it look like to walk with students um from where they are which means we have to go where they are to a point yeah. of a transforming encounter with Jesus Christ who loves them um and who yeah, has done just, all that's necessary for their salvation so
1: that's John the Herman, conversation said... that's
0: the conversation that we're having Ken Ken when we come <laughs> go ahead
1: No go right ahead
0: we have to take a very brief break. That's my challenge at this moment. So when we come back, if you'll hold that thought, Ken, I'll ask you to to share it. Um, and then I'd love for you to share your young life story as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, we're continuing our conversation with Ken Tankersley from Young Life. You can find um, Young Life and more about Young Life at younglife.org. Ken, you were going to share a thought, and then I cut you off.
1: Oh, no, you're fine. I I was going to affirm, I think you nailed it. The uh, You were asking, what is a way that we can engage the culture today? And the good news is love still works. Love still works. So a caring adult reaching out to a student, an adolescent, a neighbor, it works in all fronts. Again, our desire is to to know one another and be known by one another. We've said for years, the greatest apologetic, the greatest proof of the existence of God, maybe the most attractive quality of God that comes out is when another person sees a transformed life. And you had mentioned transformation. That's God's method. Or better or worse, and we've seen both sides of this, is men and women. So the more our life has changed and transformed, the more it causes a person that's not a faith, a non-believer, to stop and pause and look and then even ask questions. One of the things that we're doing now, maybe more than ever, maybe it should have been a major part of our posture to begin with, but we've re-engaged it, is I think we sit and we listen and we ask questions more now than we ever have. The pandemic caused some things, certainly, but it revealed some things. And I think what it revealed was the need to hear one another's stories and to listen and to ask good questions. And we see great modeling of that all throughout scripture. Last thing I'd say, I asked a friend once, the question that you just asked me, he said, what do you think I asked him, what do you think are the inroads that the believing community, the faith community has to the secular world, the non-believing community? I thought we wouldn't get a clear answer and we'd ruminate on different ideas or philosophies, but his answer was clear, succinct and quick. He said, I, I see non-believers turn their heads when two things happen there's one, is when a non-believing person is confronted with beauty, they're not sure what to do with it. I followed up that question with, what do you mean by beauty? And he said, well, a mountaintop, uh, poetry, beautiful music, the birth of a child, things that we can't really explain when, when they see that it draws them to thoughts in regard to faith. And then secondly, and this may be the most important for our conversation this morning, He said, when a non-believing person sees a believer, a Christian, when they see them serve, they're not sure what to do. And beauty and service may be the two most powerful tools that we have at this place in, in our history in the US to engage, whether it's in my work with adolescents or with a neighbor or someone down the street, Beauty and service. When people are confronted with beauty, it draws their mind, their thoughts, their heart to Christ. And when they see believers serve, they wonder about that motivation. And that is a good place to start the conversation.
0: Ken, I love um, those observations. Uh, I'm I'm thinking of of others who have who have pointed out that we have a tendency in apologetics to focus on the transcendental um, reality of God's truth, that God is truth, and that we, you know, we want to focus on truth and truth claims and what is true. Um, But what is good and what is beautiful are right in there. And Mm -hmm. beauty, um, I do think, particularly for a visually driven and image-driven generation um, that is huge. So that's an excellent observation. Thank you for um, highlighting that. And then service. I'm, I'm thinking about all of those who have been talking for, I don't know, nearly a decade now um, about, you know, care, pr- you know, prayer, care, share, that we got to be praying for believers by name, by circumstance, you know, in community. We got to be praying and then we have to be tangibly caring for people and that that's the service component. Um, and that creates not only the um, the right attitude of the heart because i 've been praying for the person but the but the proximity to them that provides the opportunity for them to turn aside and see and ask and wonder, and then for me to sit and listen and ask good questions and cultivate a relationship um, but all of that takes time. Talk with us about the level of commitment required by a believer today. Um, in terms of the time it takes, the time we should imagine committing to reaching a non-believer.
1: Yeah. I read an article once that, that said it took over 200 hours to make a friend. And I thought, that sort of says it all. We're in a culture, we're in a time where everything is is microwaved and you can't microwave friendship you can't microwave trust Um, you can't quickly clean another one's story through empathy you need to spend time together Uh, every now and then we don't get letters as much as we used to but for any young life volunteer or staff person like myself who's been around for a while you keep whether it be a text or an email or a letter, you keep a file of letters uh, from students over the years. And there's always consistent wording there. Uh, Two words I think about that pop up over and over is always and never. You were always there and you never gave up. So there's a consistent faith-based, faithful posture there. Students that I met as a 14-year-old I never thought for many of them, some come in and out of my life and vice versa, and they may come to a Young Life gathering once. Others, I'm performing their wedding 10 years later, or we're dear friends 30 years later. They're they're peers or we're neighbors. So it's a ministry that you know that you might be with this person for life. And that's one of the great honors for any of us in ministry. Uh, and you don't know the significance of any offhand interaction. I think people are always watching. It's no—it's uh, pretty simple that in Scripture, the way we are described, people of faith, is terms like salt, and light, and aroma, a wellspring, a garden. These are all things that others are drawn to. That's the aroma of Christ, and. I think sometimes that can happen quickly, sometimes that uh, is the privilege of sharing a life together, but that is uh that is not only what we sign up for in faith that is one of the great joys in faith and I'd be remiss to not acknowledge we're transformed by that. It's not just our desire to get the message of the good news out there, whatever our community or our corner is, but like you had asked about my faith i've I've been on staff at Young Life for 31 years, and I'm a different person now than I was certainly 30 years ago or the last two years. Like God has refined and changed and developed me every year and every moment that I have with a teenager. It changes me inside out. It's uh, It's been an absolute gift.
0: Amen. Ken Tankersley, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for what you do each and every day with Young Life. You guys can check out uh, more about Young Life and find um, a Young Life committee or crew near you, younglife.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All righty, so thanks to Mary, who texted in at 877-933-2484. She uh, shares her Young Life story. That is fun to hear. Um, She says she had a week-long backpacking experience called Beyond Malibu. Yep, Mary, my experiences were at Young Life's Windy Gap and Pioneer Plunge properties, which are in North Carolina. My guess is um, if you are an evangelical person, you have some experience, some Young Life story. It may not be your own. It may be uh, a story of a kid in your community or your pastor. Lots of uh, lots of people in ministry today have a Young Life story. So it's one of those questions you could ask uh, in your conversations today. You could ask of your pastor or other Christians in your community, hey, do you have a Young Life story? Maybe you have a crew story. There are um, all kinds of ministries out there extending the gospel Um, And it's not to say that they're beyond the reach of, of where the church can reach, but they are expressions of gospel outreach that are intentionally geared toward young people. And they're very, very effective. Impact 360 is one that I'm thinking of today. All right, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Where in the Word have you already been today? If you haven't been in the Word, let's get into the Word of God before we get out there into the world that God so loves. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we'll be right back.